Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, Ewan. Morning, Jan. And we've got authors. Who have you got this morning? Well, I have Stuart Kells, but not before Sophie Laguna. Yeah, absolutely. And I am. I have a welcoming Sophie back again. Thank you, Jan. Um, now, if you choke someone, you strangle them. You stop them speaking out, but there is another choke, and it has to do with water. And it's also the title of Sophie Laguna's book. What's that choke? When I was uh, researching the setting for the story, I looked at the Murray River and I learned about a, a part of the Murray River known as the Barma Choke, and it's where the banks of the river come in considerably closer, contributing to the wetlands there, you know, because the, the river floods and uh, the red gums continue to grow underwater. And I was quite interested in... Um, the idea of the choke as a metaphor and the place itself. Yes, a it, it, very good metaphor for not being able to speak Very out. useful, mm. that's right. So the Murray River and its surrounds are also the playground of the Lee family. The story starts with Kirk, Steve and Justine. But it doesn't sound like play that they're doing. Well, yeah, there's a fine line, isn't there, between oh, play violence. and uh, what is it? A kind of violence between siblings as they as they as they bond and as they as they divide. Uh, yeah, so I'm 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 playing with that, I guess, in that opening scene. There's slingshots, there's fighting, there's threatening to tie her up and leaving her there, and then they yep. help to rebuild her cubby. And there's loyalty and um, something that draws them in together as they look at the trees above their heads and make their way back up to Pops, where where Justine lives. Yeah, so there's um, a lot of action but not much talking about how they feel or they're, they're just words that these kids don't speak, as probably brothers and sisters. That's know. right. Well, you say that Justine goes home to pop. Where do, the other, where do her brothers go to? So Steve and Kirk live with Rel. Uh, Justine and those, they have different mothers and uh, that's a source of mm. trouble between them because Justine's father chose her mother over the boy's mother. So Rel just will not even look at Justine. That's right. Justine oh. says that Rel has never looked at her and wouldn't recognise her in a lineup. Oh. So what does Justine actually know about herself? That's an interesting question. What does she she learns about herself, I suppose, from the stories that are told around her. So she has a birth story. She knows her birth was very difficult, that she was born breech, born on her knees. And that her her birth was very traumatic for her mother and that she was split very badly. This is how Justine understands it. This is a 10-year-old's understanding of, of, the, of her birth story, that she was born breech, that the doctors tried to turn her and that she herself thought it was the right way to come out. Mm-hmm. So she understands that she, 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 she thinks she got it wrong from the start. Yeah. She misunderstood the right way to come into the world and she's ashamed, I and think. She blames herself. She does. But isn't that what children do? Oh, Unless yeah. told otherwise, repeatedly, yeah. they internalise these stories and take them on and that's what she's done. Her mother abandoned her. How else is she to understand that kind of abandonment? Her so she's, mother yeah. was, was sewn up so badly the stitches couldn't hold. One by one they came apart. Then, when I was three years old, she split for good. 
Oh. So she's living with Pop. Mm. Pop has his problems too. Well, we all have our problems. I suppose Pop is as loving as he can be. Mm. He's committed to Justine, uh, even though, as you say, he struggles. He um, was on the Burma Railway, a prisoner of war, and he uses alcohol to, to deal with some of the trauma that he's left with. And uh, But he, he has a great need for Justine. Oh. And out of all the adults in her world, he is the one that comes forward and cool. takes responsibility for her. Yeah. When he's not talking to his chooks, because that's really what he does too. They soften it? his dry edges, yeah. don't they? He, this is a quote from the book, mm. he speaks to Lizzie, his wife. She died in Ballarat Hospital in 1972. That was 19 years ago, but for Pop, it was only yesterday. Now, there's another, the big man, mm. and this is the, um, this big man is often used as, well, he, we don't know what to do, we'll, we'll watch the big man. That's right. And the big man is a man of action and no words too. The and Duke. The Duke. John <laughs> Wayne. John Wayne. Yeah, John Wayne. They bond over John Wayne. John Wayne is a hero to, yes. to Pop. And uh, perhaps he was uh, – Pop understands that if the big man was there in on the Burma Railway, things would have been different. Oh, he sort of shit. seems to represent white's, white power or um, – And yeah. he, he doesn't need to speak because he does the right thing. That's right. And there's another big man in, his, in um, Justine's life. Mm. It's the father, mm. Ray. What does Justine know about Ray? She understands quite a, I think she understands quite a lot about Ray. She describes his secrets as cooking inside him the way bread rises in the pan, mm. bursting over the top, threatening to split him. And that's a pretty intuitive mm. understanding of, of where Ray, Ray is at. So she doesn't know exactly the nature of, of, of the things that he does outside of that family home. He's, she knows he's. She knows it's. She seems to pick up that it's illicit somehow. That it's mm. dangerous, and um, she doesn't know the nature of his of his behaviour, but she knows it's threatening and difficult and difficult. And of course, when um, Ray does come home, her brothers wanted to stay the night at Pops, closer to where Dad would be coming to, closer to where he would park his truck, closer to where he would sleep and drink. And be mm. well. They all feel that way, don't they? Yeah. Well, he's their, da- he's their dad. He's yeah. their dad, and, and they love him. Yeah. Kirk desperately wants his dad to teach him to shoot, and Steve has a, po- a pocket knife. A knife. He said that his dad mm. had given him, which is contested, isn't it? Oh, yes. The one thing he has, uh, but it's the only thing he doesn't have to s- mm. share with Kirk. Mm. And uh, when he's home. They hang around. Look, let's page sixty-seven because this is a little bit of um, Sophie's book, The Choke. In the kitchen, Kirk picked up a pile of plates. He said, "When I learn to shoot, you'll be my first target." I looked through the kitchen window and saw Dad throw a piece of wood on Pop's fire. "You'll never learn how to shoot," I said. I picked up the knives and forks. My first target. Kirk pointed his finger at me as if it was a gun. If you could shoot, I said. When we came back out into the yard, we heard Dad say to Steve, What are you up to? Steve kept his eyes on a small stone in his hands. Nothing, he said. When I looked at Steve, it was as if there was a ditch all around him too wide to jump. If you shone a torch into it, you'd never see the bottom. Steve couldn't get across by himself. It was only Dad who could help him. Every time Dad went away, 
to Bathurst or Sydney or the Territory or Melbourne or Cairns, the ditch around Steve deepened, grew darker. I remember the first time I saw it. Steve was seven and Dad was just home, just through the door. He'd been away a long time and Steve ran to Dad and shouted, I've grown! Look at the mark on Pop's wall, Dad! Look! And he pointed to the mark. His face was so light, his smile so wide, his cheeks pink. See how tall? See? See? And he put his arms around Dad's legs. I watched as Dad set him back. You got your mother's height, poor bastard, he said and laughed. He turned away from Steve and I saw the ground split open around him. Oh, yes. Justine really can see the things that are happening. And, oh, Dad, he came to um, Pop's place on a horse on Kirk's birthday. And it wasn't Kirk that he offered to let to ride the horse. It was Justine. And she got up and she looked down at, at Kirk. When I got on, Kirk's mouth fell open. I saw covers slide over the tops of his eyes, blocking the light. And who did Ray, the father, actually teach to shoot? Well, it was Justine. <sighs> He's divisive. Whether he's oh. conscious of it or not, he splits the siblings. He probably does that to everyone yeah. in his life, mm. pushes them apart. This is a quote. Dad didn't teach me how to read or write or speak or make friends or look someone in the eye. He taught me how to use the smith. Oh, dear, dear, dear. And another thing, when um, she, this is sort of something she, she also notices, and of course it's in your fine writing too, Sophie. When Pop spoke to me, it was the same as when Dad did. The words were there, but it was as if they were speaking to themselves. I was just an excuse. Pop was the first call across the hill, and Dad was the echo. Oh, dear. Well, well yeah, we, we, I'm sure we all know what it's like to uh, communicate with people who are they're self-involved, so self-involved. They're not really – you are just an excuse for them to speak the words, but they're not reaching – they're not yeah, reaching you. They're not talking to you. Yeah. They're just talking around And Justine's – yeah, she's able to understand yeah. that on some level. Yeah. So we start with Justine in grade four, and she doesn't really enjoy school. Why? Well, she struggles to read. Mm. So she tried to read. She had a go when she was very small. Mrs. Betzbauer was her first teacher and she said, get up and find the word girl on the card. Mm. And Justine couldn't see the word girl. She couldn't see anything beginning with G, every other letter but not the G. Mm. And um, she felt ashamed when she sat back down because Mrs. Betzbauer was frustrated with her. And Mrs. Betzbauer didn't have the, uh, what's the word, the wherewithal, the experience to understand Justine had some difficulty in the way the letters appeared on the page, Mm. so she's dyslexic. Another quote from the book. It was because I was born back to front. My words were breech like me. Every year finished and I never caught up. Now she was punished in grade four and she was, what, what her punishment was sitting next to yes. Michael. Yeah, I remember yeah. deciding on that scene some years ago that, um, you know, she's caught cheating or something and, and um, the teacher says you can go and sit next to Michael Hooper. And um, Michael, and so at first I didn't know who Michael was going to be. I didn't know that he was going to be significant in any way. I thought he was just someone she was going to get plonked beside because he had some physical difficulties of his own. And uh, and then sure enough, within uh, within pages, that they were forming this fantastic friendship. friendship. 
Um, this is how you describe Michael. His head rolled on his neck like a flower, too heavy for its stem. His chin was wet. There was a bib around his neck. His crutches leaned against his desk. But very soon after, this is a little bit more, the code of his sounds was an easier language for me to learn than what Mrs Turning was trying to teach. That's and, right. Oh, they well, I mean, very soon, I forget, you know, all that physical stuff is just forgotten. He's a human being and his soul and, and all oh. he has to offer, his imagination, his intelligence, his loyalty just shines through oh. and they just enjoy, enjoy so much. When Michael asked me questions, he waited for my answers. He wanted to find out. He wouldn't go on until I answered. It was, uh, it was the opposite of invisible. And that's what it's, it's exactly been. it's the opposite of that experience we were talking about earlier where you're you're just an excuse to speak. Yeah. It was actual connect, authentic connection between the two of them. I enjoyed that. Yeah, and uh, of course it was through Michael that she went to the first time to the pictures. That's right. Black they saw Black Beauty. Beauty. Boy, what an experience was that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, um the closest neighbors to uh Pop and Justine were the Warleys. They used to be friends, but Justine is not allowed to talk to them anymore. And there's this threat of the close neighbours and the boys are getting bigger. Uh, part two. So, you know, we're, we're reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. Part two. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So what's happened to Justine? So, tr- so, you know, we don't want to give away too much. No. Part two covers um, three years and so... Ray has been in absence, and I won't explain why no. he's been absent for that period of time. And Michael's not there. Michael's not there. Mm. Uh, Justine is 13 at this point, starting high school. Um, she spends a lot of time at the river. She, uh, you know, she stops those thoughts about Michael and missing Michael in order to survive, endure his absence. Um, and it's one of those Warley boys, Jamie Warley. We're going to – this is – look, I got to mm. part of this book mm. and there's – I said, I don't want to read anymore. Mm. So let's set, it, set the scene from page 283. They spoke to Jamie as if he was the boss, like my dad. They wanted him to laugh, to like what they said. Nobody told me to get lost. Nobody said my teeth stuck out. Nobody said I was too thin or thin as a stick or was a skeleton or was a rake because I belonged to Jamie. He squeezed my hand and it was as if our fingers had a language not made of words, a language even I could speak. Jamie passed me the bottle. It didn't hurt anymore when I swallowed. Everything was there together at the same time. Jamie's scar, the talk of our bodies, the bells of the river, the night sky, the voices of Jamie's cousin and friends, all part of the one blanket that wrapped itself around me. It was as if I had always been cold since the start. Since the breach and the split, when I made my first mistake, and now I was warm. Oh, is she going to make another mistake? We can't tell, but Mm. boy, boy, it's such a book, such a book. We started talking about that whole feel of um, the Murray being being a part or even a character in Mm. this. And we know that Justine isn't good at... She sees things, but she she doesn't know the words to express things. And when she has pain, she she just it's expressed in a flow of massed water. This is another mm-hmm. quote: a wave made of gr- of ground and stones and mm-hmm. dirt rolling towards me. In intense pain, I saw another wave rising out of the ground as big as a mountain. Then it came down hard, 
breaking over me. Oh, that poor girl. Mm, imagine oh. that. That would be, yeah. That was pain. That Inspired was pain. by birth. Oh, <laughs> ho, ho. And the big man did not come to the rescue. No, well, who there's, needs him really in the yeah, end? He's the just big a man's fictional. A, he's fictional. He's, yep. And his power lies in the gun and that can't be true power, can it? No. She's, he, she, she uses him because she needs him for that period of time and then she, yeah, well, we won't give anything no, away. No, Yeah. Um, Sophie Laguna, this this book you have Justine. She has a bigger area to play with. You know, mm. she's um, your first book with, had Hester, and she had such a confined area just so in true. that house, yeah. in one foot wrong. And then there was Jimmy Flick, mm. who was really in his own mind anyway. Mm. You know? <laughs> this world is bigger, isn't yeah. it? I, yeah. I had a sense of that yeah. when I was in the book that this was a bigger story with a further further reach or something than yeah. than the eye of the sheep. Would you say that? I would. Yeah. Sort of say sitting it back in 1970s yeah. and you've, you've set all your books back. I have. I think it, 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 it's not because time was easier then. A child Less re- fewer regulations, fewer um, regulations on the environment. So um, and, and fewer fewer regulations in schools. So that allows me a degree of uh, liberty, I suppose, to really explore explore these issues. Maybe it's because that's when I was a child, or you know, I go back because I'm accessing or using those younger parts of myself. So maybe without even being conscious of it, I, I'm choosing to set the story back. Well, whatever. <laughs> Three fantastic books. I can't wait for the next one. Oh, Jan, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I've been speaking with Sophie Laguna about her book, The Choke, published by Alan and Unwin. Thanks very much, Sophie. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Sophie. Well, good luck with this one of the Miles Franklin after winning it in 2015. It sounds like this one's a, a uh, certainly in contention. But right now, I have Stuart Kells, whose book The Library has just been released by Tex Publishing. It has been released all around the world for reasons that will become apparent very soon. Stuart Kells, welcome to 3CR's Published or Not. Hi, Ewan. Thanks for having me. Well, look, the bibliomania that uh, is partly documented in this book. For you, there was a certain discovery that galvanised your love of collecting books. What was that find? It wasn't too far away from here. Uh, about 25 years ago, uh, I was at Melbourne University and I had a book sale uh, at one of the colleges. And just by chance, I was one of the first people at the sale, busted through the doors like the stock take sale sort of thing, and saw this spine sticking out on a trestle table across the room and, and grabbed it. And it was this little quarto uh, in full Morocco with raised, double raised bands on the spine, blue, blue um, goatskin. I thought this is very, very interesting. And um, it was a little mystery because the, the author was, was anonymous. There was no publisher. Uh, and there are only six copies uh, in the world of this particular book. You knew you were onto something then when you yeah. saw six copies only. Yeah, totally. And, um, and I describe it as the kind of the, the nucleus of my future library. Um, and I took it back to my, my um, tiny little house. We had a, a, a flat that used to be a, a hotel uh, in Rathdown Street. It was a, it was a studio, a one-room studio that my wife and I were, were living in. And this book was, was, um, it was a bargain, um, but, but when we got it home, it was the most valuable thing that we owned, uh, and it really opened up a whole sort of book life for us. Okay, so this uh, interest, uh, if I can call it bibliomania, perhaps bibliophile, um, 
you've given this overview of libraries through the ages, and unusually, and, and I think in a great way, you've started with Aboriginal songlines. So they are libraries without the written word. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over exactly what they are. How would you describe songlines? It's a really, really good question, and this is a very contested space, and I, and I like con- contested space. Good. I like um, I like controversy and, and mystery. Um, so, yeah, what is a library? You can have a library which is just a collection of texts, and the very first collections of texts were held in memory, and they were they're exchanged through conversation and through dance, etc. Um, and the, I think one of the best examples of that is the is the Arenta Library in Central Australia, uh, the 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 library that was described by um, Ted. Australo in in Songs of Central Australia and by um, by Bruce Chatwin in the Songlines book. Um, my my view is that that those two descriptions of that library uh, really didn't do it justice. That, that okay. has has a depth and a complexity that uh, is almost impossible to actually capture in in language. Because uh, there were quite a few criticisms about Bruce's book, weren't there? At the time, there were, and, and the criticisms were, were in a few different streams. One was around whether he actually understood the library. Uh, and and its and its richness, um, but also there was a concern that he was kind of bringing a, a sort of a neo-imperialist sort of or, or a white Beautiful. perspective, which I think is probably true. Um, but um, Bruce uh, adopted a, a persona in Central Australia as, as if he were doing a sort of a historical scientific sort of study. Um, but a lot of the book is obviously fiction, and a lot of the persona that he adopted was was a fictional one. And and I, I engage in in my book with this point of of what's real and what's fake around Bruce Chatwin's identity um, in relation to in, in relation to songlines. And I end with this with this nice uh, vignette of where he's he's describing this um, uh, a, a sub incision knife that that had been found in Central Australia, and he describes it as as some kind of made from some kind of rare desert oak. Uh, and, and later on, uh, someone who knows what he's talking about looks at it and says, oh, it's actually been made from an old, an old beer bottle. Uh, right. <laughs> and and uh, that that's, you know, has all sorts of interesting yeah. layers of, of truth and, and fiction. So it. for people like me who a while ago have read the song lines, uh, advice is to go back and take it with uh, more than one grain of salt. <laughs> okay, moving from the song lines to the Great Library of Alexandria. And I'm going to uh, perhaps bookend this whole uh, discussion about Alexandria by saying, well, it had its rationale for existing then, which conflicts with something you deal with right at the end of your book, and that is the demand for libraries in modern times, in recent times, to have measurable outcomes. (laughs) How do you weigh the two up? What was the motive behind Alexandria and how do they compare with why do we have libraries now? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think one of the things you're referring to there is this ambition of, of the, um, the, the, um, the owners and the founders of that library to basically collect every text in the world. Um, and it had this universal aspiration, which, which had a precedent uh, in, in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, but this, this, this incredible kind of appetite to collect texts. And the librarians at Alexandria did that in all sorts of different ways, including uh, buying texts sort of on the black market, uh, but also when ships would come to Alexandria, uh, they would uh, keep the originals and send back copies. Yeah. Uh, so there was this sort of incredible acquisitive thing. Um, but in the process of that, also uh, acquired fake texts right, and bogus bogus uh, texts which i think is fascinating and some of the some of the texts that have survived till to today um, from alexandria via constantinople and other places are either um, unauthorized copies or actual fake 
uh, editions, mm. fake uh, Greek treatises and things like that. And telling those apart would be very difficult. Yeah. So, so there's this kind of sense that it was boundless uh, and it was this amazing uh, scale and amazing scale of ambition. Um, and, yeah, the, there's a really interesting echo of that now, particularly in digital libraries and in the internet, and this the sense of, you know, where what are the boundaries of, of um, you know, digital libraries. Um, and it, the same thing now as then, there's this urgent need for curation and for librarians to help navigate through these libraries. And so that's where you really first see this sort of concept of a librarian helping people find text because there was just such an incredible number of scrolls. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's all sorts of layers again of how that library is contested and how the history is debated. And one one dimension of that is you know what actually happened to the library at the end. And there's always all these sort of stories about how it was burnt or how you know um, a, a caliph you know took all the scrolls and burnt them to heat the the waters of the bathhouses and that kind of thing. And that's a wonderful story. But it seems that what's more likely is that the library just gradually disintegrated because you have these you know papyrus scrolls in a in a river delta. Um, I mean, without this incredible effort of copying and the conservation, and the heat. exactly, yeah. and insects and other things, yeah. it just it just disappears. Yeah. So that's a wonderful sort of sense. Well, the, the theme of contested history is uh, prevalent throughout. I'd like to move from the ancient times and Alexandria up to the, there's one uh, library. I didn't realise its significance, but Saint Gall in Switzerland. Why is that so significant? Well, it's one of the things I like about uh, about, that, about uh, San Galen, they call it in in, uh, in Switzerland, and and Zankt Galen in German, okay. um, and we were there in May. Um, is is that it has that incredible history of different phases and different disasters, fires and being taken over and being invaded, and it was actually founded very early um, by an Irish monk. So it's in Switzerland, uh, and on the kind of you know the, this sort of. Um, uh, monastic route through through the German Germanic parts of Europe into into the um, Roman and Italian parts of Europe, um, and so it has that really nice kind of uh, Irish Scottish sort of history as part of the the um, the, the Scottish Irish mission into into Europe, um, and it grew very very from very humble beginnings very quickly to this um, almost an idealic idealized idyllic. Um, monastic library with this first sort of scriptorium where you've got a library below and a scriptorium above um, and it, it, it was a real kind of cultural centre but endured such terrible uh, you know, dramas and disasters um, and then you sort of fast forward to the Renaissance and you had this kind of rediscovery and the reappreciation of, of books and you have this wonderful chap uh, Poggio going to, to St Gaul which in those days, didn't look like it does now. Um, and finding the books in disarray, you know, in, in a mouldy storeroom and, you know, turning into powder and and, um, and, and there's you know, this kind of, you know, shrieks of, of, of distress because there's texts there that aren't currently known and they're just mouldering in a, in a tower. Um, and then the, the, the sort of taking away of the texts, um, creating new copies and using that to sort of, you know, nourish the, the Renaissance... And then later on in the in the 18th century, you have this beautiful investment in this amazing sort of Baroque library room, um, you know, with, with walnut shelves and floors and that kind of thing. And that that library, um, which includes some of the manuscripts from the very early times of the monastery, is there today. Yeah, you can actually go there now. Well, there's one particular book that Poggio found wasn't there that you said turbocharged the Renaissance. What was that book? 
Um, it was um, oh, it's it's the Lucretius book I on think. the nature yeah, of yeah, things. That's right. The uh, only surviving that copy. was the, and he found it amongst all this ruin. Well, and, and again, talking about contested history, that's the book that um, that Stephen Goldblatt. Goldblatt wrote his um, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, history about exactly that discovery by Poggio um, called The Swerve. And um, that particular interpretation of the discovery of that book is highly contested as well. So Stephen makes this very strong case that that the rediscovery of that book inspired the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. It sort of encouraged an atomic view of reality and, and you know, a much more modern view of reality. Um, that interpretation has been very strongly challenged recently. Okay. Uh, and Stephen does tell a wonderful story, and it yeah. is a very good book, The Swerve. Um, but um, part of the counter-argument to, to Stephen's interpretation is that that text was actually involved, was actually in other libraries at the time, and that there are lots of other texts that inspired oh, the, the okay. Renaissance. Uh, so... I mean, part of what I'm trying to do with this book is really convey the fractal nature of bibliography, that there's so many different entry points and so many different controversies and twists and turns, but also you see these wonderfully recurring patterns uh, over the uh, sort of millennial timeframes of how books are are rediscovered and how people engage with books. Now, looking at those patterns and the changes through the uh, millennia, uh, leading to one of the big questions you ask towards the end... What exactly are libraries for now? Mm. Well, as, as I touched on before, there's that point around curation, um, and we're really at that sort of digital uh, crossroads where because in Britain there are a lot of them are being closed. Aren't mm, they? That's right, and it's it's, it's kind of like uh, we're, we're having again what happened in the dark ages in some ways. <laughs> that there's that sort of you know movement away from from books, um, and my perception is that there's this real um, splitting of people into two camps, the ones who really appreciate the physical book and, and others who sort of say, well, it's an old technology, let's move on. Now, obviously, there's a place for digital texts in conservation and in reading and that kind of thing. Um, but but the metaphor I use is um, when you see a book you know, on, on, a, on, a, um, on a fire, in a fire being burnt, you have that kind of visceral... Um, you know, emotional response. Trying to burn the culture, the civilization. Whereas, mm-hmm. if you delete an ebook on your desktop or on your Kindle, you kind of feel nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a bit inconvenient, maybe. But, but so, so there's still that kind of you know physical sense and that emotional connection to yeah. to physical books. Look, I think you've done a wonderful job at the library in a catalogue of wonders, and it's not just for bibliophiles. It is so well researched. Now, if you'd like to hear Stuart talk tonight, he is speaking at the Castlemaine Library at five thirty p.m. And tomorrow night, Friday the 15th of September, at the Bendigo Library at 5.30pm. And then this Sunday, the 17th of September, at the Ivanhoe Library, this time in the afternoon from 2pm. So, Stuart Kells, well done on the library. Thank you very much for coming in to publish or not today. Good luck with the book. Thanks, you, and that's terrific. And thanks, Jane. And thank you, listeners. <laughs>